Welcome to this week's Creative Innovators. I'm your host, Gigi Johnson, and I am tickled pink to have Jason Kramer on the show. You may know of Jason from KCRW, um, which you can get wherever you are in the world online. You also might know him as he's played himself in three movies this year, including the opening scene of Billie Eilish's documentary. Jason shares his many adventures, including being an EMT during the LA riots, the Northridge earthquake, the AIDS epidemic, how he ended up at Fox Sports, and then how his work at KLOS ended up moving into his work at KCRW. He talks about the magic of Sunday nights, how he created and drove his own luck through persistent work, asking for opportunities, and taking on new challenges. Jason shares with us his various creative pursuits, including his passion for photography, his work directing videos, and his time teaching. You will enjoy this episode with Jason Kramer. So, so you and I both are, are tech geeks, things, right? tech yeah. fans, music fans, music geeks, and possibly rule breakers. So um, can you share with our fabulous audience yeah. uh, the, the many things you're doing now, and then I'll drag you backwards. I'm breaking rules, um, which doesn't always seem so popular a lot of times. Um, but I was actually talking to my friend about this. Uh, I grew up as you have to get backwards to go forward a little bit because let's just still start with forwards. Right now, you're on KCRW. Right, I'm on KCRW. Um, I've been on air for 25 years, and I have a show that is somewhat known, I would assume. Uh, for finding new artists and, and kind of like, I, I hate the, the term breaking because breaking, uh, is, is for folks that, that sit in the van, uh, and, and tool around to cities, you know, it's for the management and the bands, you know, that, that's who breaks. I'm, I'm an introduction. I'm part of the train. Uh, I'm no different than, than the, the place that books them and all that kind of stuff. But I have a, a format and platform that I'm able to play stuff. And I'm at a station, which is KCRW, which is, noted as one of the the top tier public radio but we're also a station that has allowed musical taste making for the last 30 odd years um in introducing different artists but i'm on sunday nights at 8 to 10 uh which is funny because it growing up radio was always something i was really fascinated with and sunday nights was those nights that I would always tune into radio. If it was Dr. Demento, uh, my first radio gig was with Uncle Joe Benson at KLOS, which was Sunday nights, and it was called Seventh Day. Uh, if it was Dr. Ruth Westheimer, um, and then soon came Loveline, you know, and these were all Sunday night shows, and I'm sure, you know, you take it back, Sunday nights were always, you know, special. I'm sure, you know, Burns and... and Alan were probably, you know, also on, on Sunday nights at some point. And then Sopranos came and HBO came and HBO knew Sunday nights were special because people usually were home. You know, the, the old adage is from Monday to Friday or Monday to Thursday, work owns you, right? S Friday night, Saturday night kind of work 
no longer owns you. You own you. You have the time and it's your time. Sunday is kind of that middle ground because work is starting to own you now, right? Now you're thinking about work all the time. It's Sunday night. You're more stressed about what Monday is going to be like. But you still have that little piece left where it's still Sunday and it's still your time. And that's where all these weird shows would come in. And you 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 loved it. You got glued to the radio. K-Rock out here used to play live concerts on Sunday nights, which I always loved too. And it was always bands that you never thought they would play. And I would sit there and I would record this stuff. All this stuff growing up, you had little tape cassettes you record. And so finally, you know, I've been on air all these different shifts and now Sunday night. And of course, now not a lot of people listen comparatively as they would have back then. But I actually hold true to the the thought of Sunday is a special night and that the hour I'm on eight to 10 is a special time because that was the time of when I used to listen to radio specifically, you know? Um, and again, if 10 people are listening these days, cause you know, we're bombarded with everything. It still doesn't matter because in my mind, I made it. I made it to that Sunday night spot, you know, and that, that's how I, I that Sunday it. night spot is broadcast internationally. It's on yeah. radio, right? And it's, it's internet- also record, recorded and available for playback whenever somebody wants a right. radio station. Right. Anytime you can listen to it. You know, and, and a lot of stuff I play is not, um, it, it's not just here from artists that may be from Los Angeles or the United States. Um, I, I really dive in onto trends all around the world, um, especially, you know, as, as we're talking now, uh, we're talking about um, artists that are, are really popping, that are popping out in Nigeria with Ama Piano, which is actually a sound from South Africa uh, 12 years ago that's made its way north and northwest to uh, Nigeria and, and Senegal and, and places in West Africa. And we're seeing huge blow-ups with that. I mean, from artists like um, Rema did the song with Selena Gomez to a new one that, that Rema just did with Ice Spice and and so on and so forth. Odu Modu Black, um, Adu Kunle Gold. And these are all different artists that are doing really good out of Nigeria. And other things that I'm focusing on are like what is trending right now out of India. So you have artists like Guru, um, Sid Shriham, who's actually born here, but did a lot of stuff in India, and then and then also an artist named King, and you're seeing that you know, follower wise, they're you know they're they're looking at two three million followers on socials, which is huge, um, and and watching them how they try to simulate to an American audience, which is not so huge. So giving that opportunity. I think is really important, especially, you know, working in music all these years, how can we cross, you know, a lot of the stuff over? And, and mind you, it's not the indigenous sounds that we would naturally think we hear out of India or out of other countries uh, where some would think like, oh, how can you listen to this stuff? No, it's actually pop music uh, that is close to westernized music. And they're using a lot of westernized artists at the same time and producers that are, are doing it. So, But it just comes from a different country. So it, it's interesting to see how and the comedy works. And it's kind of baked in their cultural kitchen that it's with people locally, local performance, local groups. Yeah. Local groups. And, and you're consuming it from here. You're not – are you going to Nigeria? Are you going no, to India? No, no, no. 
No, no, no. I live vicariously through other people's postings and all that kind of stuff. So this international consumption is coming from the same digital ether that you're then broadcasting back out to. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times that when we 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 do the show, I say the word we a lot because it's not about me. It's it's all a collective, and you know, and that includes the listeners as well. Because without them, we got nothing. Uh, it's exciting to see that that artists that are in other countries that are responding in real time uh, to some of this. You know, even if I'm on at eight p.m., it it might be. Uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 5 a.m. in England for an artist, you know, and it might be uh, 11 a.m. in India for them. If that's now, this is not the only adventure you're on. You've been yeah. doing music supervision for years. You've been teaching for years. Teaching photography, now dipping into uh, video because I think that's kind of fun. I think that's the next step. So I've been a photographer for at least 15, 20 years. Uh, I have about eight album artworks out. Um, I'm probably in like five different books, including I used to was one of the photographers for David Lynch music. Uh, I've been, you know, shooting stuff for the station. I shot uh, video content and music content for my own stuff for companies that I've been with. Um, a lot of promo stuff with artists. Uh, same in the Billie Eilish book. I mean, that's a whole other story, but we'll come yeah. back to her. We'll come yeah, back yeah, yeah. to that whole journey. I'm going to drag you backwards back in the day. Yeah. Cause you are a LA native, LA native. I grew up, I was born in Hollywood. I'm a, a true Hollywood baby. Um, I was adopted when I was born and for two weeks, I, uh, lived in a place called Vista Del Mar, I think, I don't know. And I was then adopted to, which is my family, my mom and my dad. And after two weeks and grew up originally, uh, well, I was the, the first place we were was in Playa Del Rey. So born in Hollywood, went immediately to the beach for about two, three weeks. And then they got their house in West LA in Rancho Park um, back, back in the days. And I grew up in West LA. Um, so for a lot of people who are not from LA, those all sound LA-ish. Very um, LA-ish. Very LA-ish. Very LA, not even, not really suburbs, still LA-ish. LA sub-communities. Yeah. So LA, LA's broken up in many communities. Uh, if you're back east, you call them boroughs. Uh, here, we just call them, <laughs> where are you from, I guess? Um, it's actually which which freeway exit are you nearest? But that's a whole yeah. other LA definition there. Yeah. So you in high school were a music kid. You were a tech kid. You were a well in high school. I was a, a music kid, troublemaking kid. Well, no. Okay, so I went to Hamilton High School. Um, I I was bused um, in elementary school, and then I went to Palms Junior High and. We had, it, you know, Palms was very, it was interesting because it was a half gangy school and then a half not gangy school. But you kind of grow up in this whole world of where you kind of know everybody. And you lived, you, everybody kind of knew everybody, so no one ever got punked with. Um, and Hamilton High School was a humanities magnet. Uh, it was like a regular school, a gang school, humanities magnet, and the music academy. 
I was in the humanities magnet for one uh, one year, and then I went to the regular part. Um, but I was what you would call a rude boy growing up, and that started from when I was actually in junior high, and that was ska back in the eighties. And I actually would wear, and it's funny, I, if I thought about this, I would have brought the clothes out. I still have my clothes, but uh, the band Fishbone, which I've always been enamored with over the years, they went, some of the guys went to Hamilton, but I look like the cross between the specials and a Fishbone album cover, right? And this all started from when I was 12 years old, when I first saw this movie called Dance Craze, or actually the album Dance Craze uh, that my cousin had gave me. And I was either 11 or 12, and that kind of like changed my whole thought when it came to music, was kind of the ska and the reggae thing. And and I became part of that whole subculture and culture. Um, but funny enough, in the 12th grade, I decided to pack all that up, and I got into the idea of working in EMS and being a first responder and actually took a class at, at Hamilton High School where it was a nursing class. And I was the only, I think I was the only guy in it. Or no, there's one other guy in it. And we would be certified nursing assistants at 16. And we would do maybe two days a week. The bus would pick us up and we'd drive the bus to VA Hospital in Westwood. And we would work on the ward with uh, VA hospital uh, patients, ward so patients. So what triggered this? Did you run uh, into somebody? Did you end up at a car accident? I mean, what? No. What? I don't know. I mean, being kind of the punk rock kid and then getting into helping folks, I've always had that inkling of wanting to i guess it was just the fascination of all that the excitement of the fire trucks the wooies and all that that i i just i don't know i just kind of dug and then um while i was finishing doing that little class i got a job um the youngest employee at san monica hospital and i ended up working there at 17 and oddly enough um, I made a smart-ass comment, and so they thought it was very fitting for me to now be on this floor that was the fourth stage oncology, which is cancer, and final stage AIDS. And that was their way of like, oh, you want to make funny comments? Then we're going to put you on this floor. And this was, this was I guess it was called Ward 8 in San Francisco, which was the AIDS floor that was notorious for like the documentaries. This was Santa Monica Hospital's kind of Ward 8, but it was more based off of folks that worked in entertainment field and a few junkies here and there. Um, and so while I was working, because I, I worked at Santa Monica Hospital for four years, and while I was working at the hospital, I, I ended up working on that floor, which was an incredible learning experience. This was 1987. So this is a, it, some of the height of what we know of, of AIDS. You, we had nurses there that would actually work on other things and contracted AIDS, and six months later, they're, they're gone. That's how it worked. It wasn't, okay, you got it. Maybe we'll get rid of it. That was it. And so you kind of learn compassion and humanity in a, in a different sense. Um, 
back then and your your eyes kind of opened up to a lot of what you see in the real world you know one thing you know especially um in gay culture back then if you were gay no one wanted to touch you no one wanted to shake your hand because there was such um there was such mystery behind aids and there was such mystery behind not mystery it's just almost like afraid so if you were gay back in the 80s good luck getting a hug or a handshake from somebody that wasn't gay because no one understood that you know and you see that spot on working in in working in aids you don't think about it unless you're actually in doing that kind of stuff um and then understanding that no this isn't a disease you just you know shake somebody's hand or touch them that you get you know and you know at first taking off that glove and holding somebody's hand was a huge step because that's what you did. You know, you didn't have to sit there and, and gown up and glove and, and, and do all that kind of stuff. Cause you realize these are people that are in, you know, dealing with, and then across the world, you got like oncology cancer, which was the same thing. But needless to say, that was such an eye opening experience for me. Um, and then at that point, um, on my 18th birthday, I was also ended up working at the hospital in an ER. I worked in surgery. I worked on all the ICUs, and then I became on the the Code Blue crash team. Mind you, I'm 17, 18 years old doing this. And on my 18th birthday, I became auxiliary, kind of like a reserve program with Los Angeles City Fire Department, which I did for four years. And in the reserve program, I became a, a captain, um, and I worked at Fire Station 58 in West LA. And then worked at 68s and 43s and then primarily worked on the rescue ambulance. And at that point, music was still always a thing in my head. But now I was kind of like, I, I kind of shifted oops, my whole personality to this EMS world. While doing that, I did a lot of overlaying. Um, I started working on the private ambulance out here, and but we were in Santa Monica and worked at a station there, which in, in, kind of interned me into working during the riot, LA riots, and also the earthquake here, and so on and so forth. Um, became a captain let's there. Not, and let's also not skip the so, so far and so forth. So oh. LA, LA riots and uh, the Northridge earthquake, those are the two pivot points you're talking about there a bit? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, working EMS during that time. There, um, my friend Annie Nightingale, who's a radio host on the BBC, she's 83 years old now, I believe, or 82, and she just wrote a, a, a autobiography, and I'm actually in her book, she gave me eight pages about day one in the LA riots, and I kind of discussed what it was like working during the LA riots at that time, and, and how oddly frightening and, and beautiful at the same time cinematically beautiful if that makes any sense and frightening it was you know the visualizations of what i saw it was a terrible time for people um, what areas were you responding in right in the middle i was actually with my partner we were on the 110 freeway and the what was it what's the other freeway the the we were not too far from the epicenter 
and I had called in uh, to our dispatch, and I said, you know, we're we're on the 110, and uh, we see plumes of smoke um, throughout this area. What's going on? And they said, stand by. And they, they at that point, instructed us to uh, forget all calls, double back, and go back to station. And that was at the very beginning. Um, and then we went back to the station, and then, then at that point, we were told to uh, wait on all calls, and then we were then told to start moving up into um, South Central. And in my in in the book, I describe leaving the station and driving through the city on our way to South Central. So, yeah, it was a, it was a very odd day, and even the days to follow. Yeah. My my memories are uh, very different, but overlapping. As I was working in downtown LA um, on the 49th floor of the Security Pacific building, and I was looking out the window just watching the fire start. And it's like, I get to get home. Where the heck is my husband? Where, where yeah. is everybody I need to find? And how do I actually drive back to my home? And ended up at some points driving on the sidewalk to get around all of the people rushing to move out of the areas they thought she, they shouldn't be in and then seeing fires right outside my apartment. And, uh, yeah, I was in Park La Brea at the time. So that was, uh, a, a adjacent, but lovely area to, to yeah. be in during this. Um, yeah. It was a very, very, very odd at that time, you know, and like I mentioned the same with the LA earthquake, we were, you know, as the earthquake actually after happened, went to the station, then we were moved up to um the epicenter northridge and we started and i actually was carrying a gun that day um because i wasn't sure what was going on um and the reason for that was during the time of uh the la riots people were getting shot at firefighters were getting shot at ambulances folks were getting shot at and so it became a preservation at that at that point and so at you know during during the uh, earthquake, um, you know, you, you kind of were afraid that, you know, looting may start and, you know, you may get shot at. And everybody was just unsure and really scared, even though it was two years later. And, you know, it's just me and my partner at the time and, you know, working with L.A. City Fire on the auxiliary thing, um, we had bulletproof vests they used to give us on, on calls. But, you know, doing this stuff, we didn't. And I used to have a lapel weapon and one holstered on, on the side. And it got to the point where I finally said, okay, we're fine. And I put it and left it in the bag. But um, but we moved up to um, the epicenter in Northridge. And during the time of a lot of the overlapping, I was also, I started working on an auxiliary program with LA County Corner. And that was me going out to uh, whatever scene it was, working with the investigators and, you know, doing... Uh, on-scene forensics to when we go back to doing any kind of forensic stuff and, and what have you. And, and seeing, you know, being, seeing some of the people that were victims in the apartment that kind of toppled down after being out there, saving people from apartments that got top down to seeing the people that were responded as we go back to the corners, it, it, it kind of did a, a little number on you, you know, and I finally decided there was, you know, two reasonings. Um, 
I got a CD a few years prior of a band that we'll get into. And I started working with that band for two years. And that kind of changed, that band changed my life in the way of I want to get out of EMS and I want to get right into into working into music. How did you um, meet the band? Well, um, I met the band again. I was a, a letter writing fool and I got the CD and I love this band and I did it anything and wanted. I always had the personality is if I wanted to get something or do something, I would make it happen. Right. And, you know, a few years prior, I answered phones at KLOS because I loved radio. I wanted to be on an ambulance because I loved doing that. Um, I wanted to know more about this band because I really like this band and saw something in this band that I probably only felt a few times before, you know, and wanted to be part of it. That band was sublime and working with them for, for two years. And, and I would write letters. I would call, I would do whatever it is. I go to bleaker Bob's and find some videos of the band that bootlegs and I find bootleg CDs. Um, and I would tell them, hey, I got these bootleg things. Can I come in? I want to show you this stuff. I want to work with this band. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing, all this kind of stuff. And they finally let me in, and I ended up working with the band for two years, you know, working uh, for promos in at Gasoline Alley, which was uh, – or Skunk Records, which was all part of the same thing. And going on short tour with them, going on stage at the first Warp Tour – uh, you know, seeing Gwen Stefani sing with Brad right then and there, uh, you know, the Weenie Rose or K-Rock, whatever, to to some venues out in L.A. and, and doing that and, and really learning how, you know, being with the band on, on stage to management styles, which to me still is one of the most brilliant management styles of what they did. Um, and and working kind of in a, a label system. Without, you know, and here I am still doing the ambulance stuff on, on the day, on the opposite days and working with this band on like Tuesday, Thursday and my days off because we did 24 hour shifts on the ambulance. So, so you're, you are a letter writing fool, but you also fool. though, don't let stuff stand in your way. Is there anything at this time that you tried to do that didn't happen? Well, right now I've actually applied to be an A&R at a label and uh, it's a very slow process. Um, I'm realizing labels work a different way than I'm I'm used to working. <laughs> and so now uh, that's been my next little venture is working in a label system in that way. I mean, I've managed bands. I manage artists now. Uh do the radio like so the, the twenty thousand things I've taken a hiatus from teaching, but who knows by tomorrow that may change. And yeah, there's like if I I put my mind to it, I want to make it happen. I'll make it happen. I'll figure a way how to make it happen. There's has anything failed for you so far? Astronaut? No, I'm kidding. Um, wait, you wanted to be an astronaut? No, I never I'm heard kidding. you wanted to be an no, no, astronaut. No, no, I'm just kidding. You know, every kid wants to be an astronaut. No, you oh, know, I didn't want to be an astronaut. I don't like heights anyway. No, astronaut. No, for me. honestly, um, 
it's not that I've, I've set certain expectations. I mean, I wanted to teach. I have a, the two degrees from Santa Monica College, but I may, I was able to teach at USC, UCLA adjacent and Musicians Institute, you know? Um, so no, nothing is going to stop in my way if I want to get it done. You know, it's just... So how did you go from answering phones at KLOS to having a show? So KLOS, I never had a show at KLOS. I just answered phones there, but it gave me, um, it kind of gave me the way of understanding how radio works. So after all said and done, I left the ambulance because I started getting fatalistic. Um, I started seeing myself in things. And it, it, to folks that don't understand what that means, is it fatal, being fatalistic in that way is... Okay, so there's a movie called Bring Out the Dead by um, Martin Scorsese that was done by... Uh, Martin Scorsese, but Nicolas Cage uh, played the main character in it. And every character in that movie was also somebody who is your personality. So you had the Ricky Rescue, you had... Uh, you know, come the Jesus guy, you had the uh, the guy going out and, and busting heads and all this kind of stuff. So you had all those different personality in you because working the field, you had to have a lot of these things, right? And the way the movie was designed was, even though that's every character, you also had characters with 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 um separate partners that were like that you know i had partners who who drank i had partners that did drugs i had partners that did all this kind of stuff um and that was something you had to deal with with them and understand um and in the movie it was about the ghosts that you see and working on the ambulance you get those ghosts and ghosts not the boo and white things with the holes in their thing the ghosts were you start seeing incidents that you were on. Um, you start remembering things that you, you you saw all the time. This is very similar to what you know folks in, in military and war kind of go through. I mean, there is you could say it's there is things of PTSD with it. I don't know, um, but I will tell you for for this, I would see incidences in my head repeated over and over and over again. I still do, um, and. For me, it got to the point where I had to actually see my face in people that I was coming to. And I didn't like that anymore. So it was time at the time to then move more into music. And then you yeah, spent right. two years with Sublime. And then how right. did that shift gears for you? Well, then by uh, chance, my mom's assistant at the time... Uh, she had a, my mom had a company, um, was vice president at Fox Sports Music, and they were building Fox Sports Net Music. And I had been brought in uh, with three other folks to Fox Sports Net Music as one of the principal architects of this new music department. And to give an idea, we had something like 17 O&O, which is owned and operated channels, um, five, six channels from National Geographic to golf to live shows, to five live shows a day. We were responsible on music to uh, almost 10 scripted to promos to the whole nine yards. And they use over maybe 2 million cues of music a year. And so there are three of us that kind of 
worked in this world. And I was just fascinated with now working in music. And this was the 90s. And oh boy, in the 90s, you could just go anywhere if you worked in music. And getting able to to work in, in, in this field and, you know, and, and finally leaving behind that whole EMS stuff, which I so wanted to do too. And I, I gave 10 years of my life for that, you know, and, and I was, I was content because I, I did it. I wanted to do it. I wanted to work this. I wanted to do that. And I did it. I made that happen for me. Um, now I can move on to my second part of my life, which is my love of music, which I was as a, as a teen kid. And now I get to work with bands that I I admired. And I can't believe this stuff. You know, like I said, Fishbone was like a band I, I you know, the, was my favorite band, still is. And, you know, they did a theme song for us. Uh, working with all these other bands and, and seeing this live and, and being able to go all this cool stuff was just like another dream. It was a hobby that became, you know, a career. And doing that at Fox for, for six years. But during that time, um, I got a secondary job like most kids at that time did. Uh, one first was Starbucks and then I left that and then, uh, worked over at museum of TV and radio. And I got a job at museum TV and radio because I wanted to learn more about radio. Um, I wanted to learn more about how TV worked and I wanted, I learned it vicariously through, uh, watching it. So I would listen to these old shows, on radio, uh, like Roscoe, who is still a guy, I, I still use um, his words. He said, the mind excursion, the true diversion, the hippest of all trips. And that's how he began every show. And I, I to this day, use that. And Roscoe originally started in L.A., then moved to New York. And I would listen and I would study. And I would study all these radio guys, like how they did all this stuff. And one day, while I was there, uh, Michael Stipe, had a session and KCRW was sponsoring the session and it would be live at museum of TV and radio. And I was a fan of KCRWs and I thought, you know, let me ask. Cause my father always told me, he says, no one's going to knock on your door. You got to ask if you want something. And I asked and the chief engineer, Steve said, yeah, let me give you this phone number. And, uh, I called that phone number and said, you know, I, I love radio. I would love to come be part of this station. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And and I kind of learned that from the the fire, the paramilitary kind of training is like, what do I need to do to be better? You know, it was always like you you were always trained. You you were trained to to ask your captain, what do I need to do to take your job? Right. That was that was the kind of mentality that they always taught you is like, what do I need to do to become you? I want to take your job. What do I need to do? And so, so you kind of learn that, that kind of thing It's like, okay, I want to work at at the station. How do I now work at that station? Right. So I'm going to stop you and back up a little bit. Yeah. What did your parents do? Very blue collar. My mom was a teacher, then um, was a mediator for uh, folks getting divorced. She had her own company. And my dad was an airplane mechanic in avionics. My grandma was a teamster. (laughs) And uh, my other grandmother, um, well, she was more of a a grandmother. But her her husband, who who passed early, my mom's and uncle's, um, he was an accountant. 
but yeah. So how did your dad get that philosophy? Because that sounds like it's been an operating tool in your tool belt the whole time. Army. Okay. Yeah. He was a staff sergeant also. So the idea of the kind of the paramilitary training or training is something that I was very accustomed to uh, growing up. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which today is a, is a very odd discipline that a lot of kids don't have. Uh, but it's a discipline that I'm very comfortable with. Even when I see folks who work in, in service field with that kind of training or every military, I, I, I have this weird kinship with them because I understand, you know, and I understand what it was like working in, in environments like that, that most people don't. So KCRW, you stepped yeah. in to, to what do I have to do to get your job? Right. What job did you step into? Well, I answered telephones on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday or something like that, and I would get there at 6, 7 in the morning, and I would answer telephones and do the night's playlist for the DJs at the time in the morning um, and then get to work by 9 a.m. So I made it a point that if I have to get up at 5 o'clock, I'm going to be at the station at 6, do what I need to do, and then go to my job. That is something I did. That wasn't good enough. I wanted to know more about what it was like to be on a show. So the volunteer coordinator, Josh, at the time, had a show on Saturday nights. And he was on from like 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So what did I do? Well, still answer the phones on Tuesday. Went to work at Fox Sports. And then on Saturday nights at 2 a.m., I would go and sit on his show and produce his show with him. Just so I could learn how to do it. As time went on, I made a tape, and one day, uh, one of the DJs who was on wasn't feeling well and had to bow out, and they couldn't find anybody, so they said, we heard your tape, we would like you to come on um, and be in, you know, come in the station. And I thought, oh, I'm just filling in, being producer. I'm like, no, 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 you're coming in, you're on. We heard your tape, it's on you now. And went ahead and went in and did my first show. Just had my 25th anniversary. I... It's in the other room, but I do have the actual playlist um, from that night, um, which is funny enough. So, Low Fidelity so, All-Stars. Um, well, Hallelujah. I remember that, that song. That was like the first, uh, the first one, first song. Battle Flag. <laughs> so you, you had the combination of persistence, mm -hmm. having a... a broad and aggressive knowledge of music mm -hmm. and being willing to start at the bottom, but having already had five other jobs or whatever, by the time you walked in the door, so you knew how to deliver. Mm -hmm. How did that first few years work out for you then? If I need to be somebody's wing, I have no problem being somebody's wing. And because the outcome for me isn't about me. It comes from the we, and that's part of a, that training. You know, you're with a bunch of folk, and you got 12 folk that work in a station, and there is nobody that's going to outshine anybody, right? You shine, we shine, we shine, we all shine type thing, right? Um, 
And so I, it's always been me, you know, and of course, work in entertainment. It's kind of a hard road with that because that's not what it's about. It's a very monolithic me, look at me, look at me. And I've just never been that guy. And so I'll prevail and keep pushing and pushing and occasionally be a little passive aggressive uh, with a little humor attached to it. Um, you know, IGM, I got mine type attitude, right? Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, I, I, I would work and, and hand these new artists and some of these artists, a lot of these artists would then blow up and become huge artists. And I would just kind of step in the background knowing that, you know, what I did and making sure that boss there gets, you know, gets the good looks and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's so something I'm going to swing back to this, but let me swing over to the, when did you start doing photography? Cause you've been doing photography for a really long time. Yeah, so I actually would take my camera on my days off and I would shoot a lot of EMS, a lot of accidents and fires and things like that. Um, so you're probably looking at 18. A lot of this stems from my my uncle. My uncle was a huge is a huge influence um, from music to photography because he shot. And my dad also did a lot of photography, but not as a professional. Um, my, one of my mom's best friends was a photographer. So that's always kind of like been in our, our world, music and arts. Um, and yeah, I used to do it for, for EMS stuff. And, and so there were fire stations with a lot of my fire photos in it. And I, I and I would like to know if they're actually still up there. Cause I'd be really interested if any of those pictures are still there. And then, but you've been doing music photography then as you've had the opportunity access and yeah. connections to be doing that. Yeah. Uh, I, I realized that if, because I worked in music, you know, I worked in a music house and a place called Elias Arts, and we would have these interviews that I thought, well, we could get these bands to come in and not do showcases, but put them in a live room and change the perception of a showcase to a live recording because we'd have a live recording and we would get folks from agencies to come in and we put them behind the live room and the editor behind the glass. And the only way they could hear the band is if the engineer would press the button, right? And, or we'd record it. And I came up with this idea of, of perception shifting that if we do that, uh, these people who always seen showcases before never seen an actual recording. And so we would get some really cool bands that come in. And at the same time, we would film these bands with the hopes of putting it on the YouTubes and, uh, you know, uh, get it out there for marketing purposes, only to realize that the attorneys at labels were a little a-holy. <laughs> and so... They don't see the well, big there are different picture. rights for those. Those are different buckets of rights. I understand. But when when <laughs> argument that I would have is like, look, if you're going to make a video to put on MTV for marketing purposes to get people to buy these records, then it's no different for us to have a video compilation of these live performances. Let us have something out of this when it comes to the loot. You know, maybe give us a few bits of the royalties because in the turn – we're sending this out for advertisers who may, I don't know, give $100,000 to an artist right off the boat because we're creating uh, marketing content for them. Nope. Nope. Universal, you know, nope. So I, I was so a little annoyed you, with that. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you get into music supervision? 
So that was part of Fox Sports. Um, I was hired as an assistant, and music supervision at the time wasn't really a position. It was a position that was mostly given to uh, studio executives. Uh, we had that at Fox. Uh, the studio executives would be the music supervisor for films, not individuals at that point, and or music directors that would be associated to TV shows. So like I Love Lucy has a music supervisor, but it wasn't a licensing thing back then. A music supervisor was more in charge of the music itself that was on the show and the direction and composing and, and putting that all together, right? It was more of a, a, a cognitive thing than, than anything. But fast forward, we now, it's, it's, it seems like it's more like a business affairs position than anything, clearing and licensing and all that. But if Fox, um, we kind of like created this position without having the title because we had a studio music supervisor who was in, in charge. He was president of music, Robert Kraft, who was president of the music at, at Fox Studios in the music thing. That was his title. I don't want to take that away from him because that that's what he earned, right? And, you know, brilliant what he did. So since we were TV, we just kind of kept our own, uh, as we call it, music department. That was the credit we got. So we'd be on the TV shows and we would take that credit instead. So you have, if you look down your IMDb, you have lots and lots and lots of stuff. But including being music supervisor on films. So how did that gestate? That was just me going down and saying, hey, I want to work on some films or folks reaching out and that kind of stuff. You know, it was it was more of a hobby than anything at that at that point when I started doing that kind of stuff. Um, I thought about doing, you know, I'm still open to, to working on films again. These were all little B, B, C rated films, nothing really big. Um, mostly was like doing the TV stuff. And yeah, and then. Well, I am so this, the past yeah. few years, you mm -hmm. have been recognized for your taste making. Yeah. Going to talk about any of that? Because you've had a lot of visibility as you, where maybe, again, you tend to be part of the, the we team, and it's gotten a little bit more visible of the you, Jason. Um, well, how yeah. has that manifested, and has that been a good thing? It has. Um it's hard for me to, to like, cause it's just, yeah. So I got, um, a lot of notoriety in, in the recent days. I should say, no, when Twitter first came out, um, I was utilizing Twitter as a marketing tool, um, to finding artists in UK, uh, finding artists in Australia, and using my Twitter handle, the station Twitter handle, and then the artist handle, and then posting a picture of the artist album on Twitter. And I would do this over and over again, and really giving uh, folks opportunity that may have been in England that never knew, you know, that were only in the UK. This was pre-Spotify, so streaming wasn't there. And I would listen to, you know, different radio stations out there from Radio 1 to Radio 6 to NJ, whatever it is in Australia. And I'd study and learn, 
you know what what's trending what's working i would use shazam as a barometer um and my friend had no this was prior but i would use shazam as a barometer and kind of look to see what's trending in different countries and then i would start playing some of these artists here in the united states and utilizing twitter as a way of of a marketing tool uh to get that move forward and and then it got to the point where i would start um meeting a lot of these artists on the personal um and playing them on the radio and you know as time just went on uh i would see myself on one sheets i would see myself on one sheets next to bbc radio hosts um and i would start seeing myself in uh, one sheets are sheets that uh press will send out to other people in media and then i would start basically saying that this is where this is who's playing the artist yeah but it would be yeah. usually like three or four folks on the top tier and i would start seeing my name on there and then i would um you know then things would pop up um where i would be featured in some uh liner notes right um and then weird things happen. All of a sudden, I'm like on like three student dissertations for PhDs. You know, people will call up for that, which I always thought was weird. And then as as time went on, um, you know, the the artist stuff. I would meet a lot of these artists. I would keep in communication. Um, I would do the the filming with them and photography and that. And my friend at the time, uh, Danny was. Uh, we were managing a band together. And he started managing Billy, Billy Eilish. And that's, a, I, I would say it was like halfway in that I was doing my thing. I said, you know, there's new artists. I said, can I do what I do? And he said, yeah. And so we played her. And and funny enough, um, they recorded the first time we played. And I'm the opening scene in the, the film, the Billy Eilish documentary. And today, now I've been in like three movies that I play myself, which is funny. Um which is a whole other bucket list thing that I wanted. Um, and so, you know, the, the thing with Billy was really cool because, you know, I, I kind of knew them on the personal, the whole family and that, and, and watching them grow. And it just kind of reminded me of being back in the sublime day of seeing this band that no one kind of knew to the point of, you know, how big it became and, and being able to see this for a second time. And it was quite fascinating for me to to see the growth of something. And uh, funny enough, you know, being taking pictures of her first show to her second show and uh, a Canadian character named Nardwar uh, has me as a question. And that was one of the most giddiest things I've ever experienced, because now I'm like a question of a, a Canadian personality in music. And I'm I'm a question of his. And I was just, I was beyond floored when I, I saw that kind of stuff. It's the weird things that, that we all see. Is it a for. music equivalent of Trivial Pursuits? No, Nardwar is, he, he is, he is, he wears a little funny weird hat and a uh, really brilliant guy. He comes out of the left field with questions to, especially a lot of hip hop artists. And he's known in music, um, especially, you know, younger stuff, well, few years older now but uh, finding these questions about an artist and mm. you know where did you first you know how did you 
I don't know, whatever it is. And being a question of his, I was just absolutely floored because that, you know, I was always a fan of his and I never experienced and thought of something like that, you know, and then being in a film and, and then, you know, the books and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, you know, that, that was just like one, one part of, of, of the, you know, part of the journey, I guess. I don't know. I mean, this is what I do. That's my job, I guess. And then, and then being able to see, you know, some of the people that I admired in radio and starting to see them on the regular and say hello to them and shake their hand. And, um, you know, now going to shows and, and, you know, people kind of know your name. It's still, it's still very weird and foreign to me because that's just not my, my basic personality. But, um, yeah, I mean, how fortunate to be able to get all that is just a daily thing for me. Jason, we have covered a lot of ground and I know we could talk for a while <laughs> longer because you've had such a fascinating life so far. What have we not talked about that you might want to make sure we mention? Let's see. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, every day is a different day for me. Uh, I, you know, some of the things I want to get to is more in the arts. Um, I'm going to restart a lot of my photography under a different alias, um, which is actually my name for the first two uh, weeks of my life um, that I was born with that they gave me at the hospital. And that's going to be my art alias because it has such a cool name to it. Um, and I don't know, get into directing video. I met a friend. She's, uh, you know, works on, uh, she's a producer and we just talked about, uh, me writing, which is hard because I actually have a learning disability. And so it's, it's really hard for me to write. Um, so I need that writer. Uh, I'm putting that out in the world and, uh, I, I don't know. I want to get back to teaching again, but not necessarily teaching in the way that a lot of these schools teach, but teach more. I, for some reason, Steven Sagmeister, who does marketing and art and all this, is is something that keeps popping in my head and, and watching what he does in his company. I, I kind of want to like create something and do something like that for students that need to learn what they need to learn in music to make it all better and easier for them, you know, to make it a functional, uh, surrounding than what we have now. Cause a lot of the stuff you see in schools, it's just, it's not covering, uh, you know, and it's both, both me and, you know, it doesn't cover technology. It doesn't cover common sense and it doesn't cover nuance and nuance is just one of those words that I think, you know, I want, I want to open a t-shirt company too. That's another one. Oh, we need to talk about that because uh, I'm actually wearing a T-shirt from an event I went to a long time ago, and I'm I'm ready to do, I'm ready to do T-shirts. My friend, we'll made... have a T-shirt with the podcast with everyone's sayings on it. Oh, that would be awesome. This my friend did this. He has the Valley uh, Rec, uh, Valley Museum here in the Valley, the, and he has the logos for all these things. So he makes these shirts, and I absolutely love these. Very cool. But Jason, yeah. um. Who would you like to reach out to you and how would you like them to reach out? Always email so that I could always go back 
and then you can have the phone number. <laughs> We're all, all it's fine, but always a business on the email because otherwise that, that will get lost, you know. Um, yeah, whoever I don't know. I mean, if folks see stuff, we'll put, the, we'll put your email in the show notes. So if you want his email, you can go in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, and we'll put look, all the links to all your adventures in the show notes as well. Yeah, the reality is like look, I'm always open to new ideas. I I'm 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 a 110% or 120% or whatever it is. If it works, it works. I want to make things happen and especially new ideas and new creations, you know. It it's obvious I mean, I, I it's obvious that I put my mind to it, I make it happen because everything I put my mind to, I've made happen. Um and I never thought, like, I'm in this Connie Converse movie coming out where I play me. So, in fact, uh, I play me as a paramedic while a paramedic or EMT in Falling Down, funny. Then I'm the opening in the Billy. And then I play me as a DJ in this movie called Roving Woman coming out. So, I actually want to be in more movies playing me <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> So people who are watching or listening, yes, Jason because, wants to play Jason. Yes, because and, and this has been something I want to do. So Wolfman Jack always played Wolfman Jack, right? And American Graffiti and all this stuff. Eric Bogosian was this movie where he, he played somebody else, but in talk radio, you know, and these are movies, you know, Robin Williams. I love movies about radio, right? I've always loved them. Um, the one Pirate Radio was another one about the boat in Israel. I love movies about radio. I was always fascinated with that. And the fact that I'm in two films where I have my voice playing me is one of those bucket list things that, again, it's just, I don't understand why. It just is what it is. But now I want to be more in those radio things. I want to be me. Yeah. <laughs> if that's weird. I, I just want, I want to have more radio things than Wolfman Jack, whatever it is. I just I I'm fascinated with just doing that. That's the only me thing about my whole we thing. Excellent. <laughs> Legacy. Jason, thank you for thank joining you. us. And and for anybody who wants to have Jason be Jason, contact Jason. And otherwise, Jason's continuing with his wonderful adventures, and we'll have lots more detail in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint, so we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the Career Adventure Guide content, where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators, as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and, and find out where else you can find and combine with Creative Innovators in 2024.